Hello and welcome to The Scoop, a provincial newscast and podcast with stories from LJI journalists around British Columbia. Each week, reporters from Revelstoke, Cortez Island, Kootenai, Terrace, Prince George and Smithers will share the news affecting their place in BC. I'm your host and producer, Pamela Hassan from CSEK News and Smithers. The Scoop was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program, or LJI. Follow The Scoop on CICK Smithers Community Radio, 93.9 FM, every Thursday and Saturday at noon, online at smithersradio.com, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode three of The Scoop. This is the last episode of the year and will return on January 4th. Today's episode is called Solstice and Dark Times with a dash of good news. This week's scoop is in the search for cash, $150,000, that is, in Revelstoke. The state of the Columbia Basin Boundary Region is in a bit of flux. CJLY's Scott Anishak has that scoop. A little good news coming out of Prince George. Six Indigenous youth are about to enter a 25-week hands-on radio broadcast training program at CFUR. If you're down to observe and report, maybe you should consider joining the Citizens on Patrol Society in Smithers. Shake the dew off after the winter solstice on December 22nd in Cortez with DJ and Brenda Hansen. CKTZ's Lonnie Taylor has the scoop. Brenda and DJ Hansen will be performing for the Cortez community at the Solstice Coffee House on Friday, December 22nd at Manson's Hall at 7 p.m. Thanks so much for joining. Hello. Yeah. We walk away. Yeah. Some urban slime. Hey, what's going on? Or what's that? You know. You both were on the stage at Les Fest August, and that was the second time you played for Les Fest. And how does it feel to perform and see on that stage? It's always a wonderful invitation. Absolutely. To be invited. A deep appreciation for the organizers, first and foremost. And I'm always excited about being part of the Love Fest. I like the title, Love Fest. And there's always a real variety of different genres of music all styles of music. The other part of it that's um, special too is it's wonderful actually to be here on Cortez on our traditional territory and to have the honor, the privilege to to open with a song and prayer is really special to me. Well, I mean, yeah, just the title in itself called the Love Fest, but it uh, all just makes it to a wonderful environment. Now, like uh, Brenda had mentioned, to get an opportunity to, to do performing uh, with their very much throughout the years, so it's always it's always an honor and a pleasure to be uh, to be connected as siblings and then to be able to share gifts in uh, within our own traditional territory because it's such a uh, an essential and necessary grounding to be able to, uh, to share a little bit of culture and to to share uh, a little bit of uh, the history of our influences and of various music genres. I mean, it's a well organized event with so many talented people and. You know, the uh, technical and uh, artists' expressions, uh, but I'm um, just kind of reflecting on the first year uh, initially that, uh, you know, hey, geez, it's been a while since, uh, it's been a while since we've been treated uh, with, with honor and respect because uh, that's, you know, at some festivals where we both have, you know, Brenda's played all over the world and I've played 
I've been, you know, had my share of playing some festivals throughout the years and uh, yeah, they've been treated, treated so well. You will be performing at four private events for the Cahoots First Nation members. And there's four because they're all in different locations because there's Cahoots members living far and wide beyond Cortez Island. So That's right. do you, do you both want to share how you're feeling about anticipating that type of performance? It's our second year of going to a celebration of the holiday season, Christmas season, where you are going to be performing Christmas songs and some of our own songs. First here on Cortez Island in Skull Cove, and then over to Polliver, Camarilla, and then all the way down to, to Upper Washington. So, we, so we're really exercising uh, all my relations because everyone's kind of lives at large. So we're looking at uh, having that foremost opportunity to be able to share share a meal, share our gifts, and sing some songs. So that's, that's good. Freda? I'm looking forward to it because the number of pe people who live in community, in the Clahoos communi community, is a small number. You know, it's like 70, between 70 and 80 at any given time. So to be able to go out into these four different locations and get to meet them, spend time with them, you know, share a meal with them, share music with them. And, you know, some of these relations of ours that Dwayne speaks of, we haven't even met. We don't even know who one, we don't know who each other are. So this is a really, really special time for us to connect because we are all of, from the same nation and we're all connected in one way or another, bloodline wise and otherwise. It's special, it's I'm honored and I'm privileged and I look forward to it. And Dwayne says that it's Emot Christmas. That's how you say it. Emot Christmas. Christmas. Well, this next year we'll, uh, we'll be singing some Christmas carols in our Jutham song. You could join along with it. So. That's me a year from now? Yeah. Is it? Gonna take that long to translate the songs. Well, okay. the songs have already been translated. We just got some of them have been, yeah. Just to pick them up, yeah. With our Jaja, our Jaja is of Jaja Media. Yeah. Wow. Wilson and Jacqueline and a whole bunch of other brothers and sisters yeah. have got a lot of wonderful things going on, and we'll be connecting with them hopefully sooner than later on all yeah. the language revitalization stuff that we have going on, and uh, they're going strong. They're leading it like nobody else can. So, well, I look forward to hearing more about that in the future. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we'll be we'll be around. <laughs> Revelstoke Social Service Organization Community Connections is trying to raise $150,000 this December for their food program as the demographics of their client base has changed over the years to include more families and people working full-time jobs. You're listening to Stoke FM, broadcasting at 92.5 FM in Revelstoke. Here's some news. The Revelstoke Food Bank needs $50,000 more in donations in order to meet its fundraising goal this holiday season. The ultimate goal is to raise $150,000.
this is double what the food bank usually tries to raise in December. Sheena Wells is the executive director of Community Connections Revelstoke. She says they need to raise more money this year because more people than ever are using the food bank. The cost of living is up in general, and some of the grants they used to get have petered out. The Roxy Theatre on Thursday is taking donations of non-perishable food and cash to see the movie Wonka. This is supported by Stoke FM, along with the Revelstoke Review and Ian Gray's Salmon Arm GM dealership. Everything will go to the food bank, and people are being asked to dress in your best Christmas cheer outfit. Several big contracting businesses in town presented $23,000 to the food bank. This is at a time of unprecedented need. Food bank use has gone up steadily over the last three years since 2020. Its use has doubled multiple times. People are hungry and they can't afford food. And this isn't just in Revelstoke, it's across the whole country. Hannah Whitney runs the food bank. She says everyone is using the food bank. We know that food banks are being squeezed from both ends, not just here, but like across Canada. It costs more to acquire food and more people are needing it. How is this playing out on the ground for you? It is pretty tight. It's definitely harder to allocate as much food as the demand for food has been going up and prices are soaring. It seems like every other week I'm getting emails about price increases of things that we regularly buy. So it is difficult, but that's why food donations that continue to come in and our food recovery that we get from our, our local partners is so essential, as well as it's been helpful to acquire food from some greater sources, like within the food supply chain. We get food from like Kelowna Food Bank, and those things have really been saving graces in the last few months as, as things get tough. Who's using the food bank? It seems like everybody is using the food bank at the moment. And by I mean that, there's no set mold for the kind of person who might be experiencing food insecurity more than other people. At the moment, everybody's being affected by inflation and the affordability crisis, housing as well, extremely so. So lots of people are coming from many different household backgrounds. In the past, more traditionally, food banks were used by people on income supports, so like with fixed incomes and maybe living in subsidized housing. And that's because, you know, those are they're on incomes that are harder to afford life on. So food bank was an essential way that they could meet their needs. And in the past, you know, if you had a full time job, you were able to meet your needs in whatever it was, housing and food. And right now that's not the case. When somebody comes to the food bank for the first time, do they have to register and show proof of income or anything like this to prove that they need it? When people come for the first time, there is a registration process. We tell them about the program. We inform them the intention of the program and all the rules around it, like what items you can take, how many quantities of, where the food comes from, what we are as an organization and a nonprofit. We try to tell them about as much background so that they're well-informed on the food bank and the intention of it. And then we do ask people to register, which we allow people to tell us as much or as little as they want because privacy is something we want to maintain. And also we don't want there to be any barriers to access, which can be the case for a lot of people. Not everybody has identification. Usually people who are living in poverty and extreme levels of poverty don't have identification. Sometimes we feed people who are 
just in town for a few days because they're trying to get to Calgary to get to more supports there, say, social supports, because Revelstoke doesn't have as many social supports as a city. They've broken down their car and they just need food in that interim. So there's lots of situations where we don't even register if that will be a barrier to that person receiving food. The most important thing for us is getting people who show up and say, we're hungry, we need food, getting them that food. I've been running the food bank for four years now, and I would be intimidated to be new to this town and then walk up to the building for the first time and not know what's going on and not know people in town and how it works. Like, it does take a lot to get to the door. And I mean, you know, there's scenarios where we encourage people to come because we know that they're in poverty and they still won't come because of how many barriers and shame is surrounding using programs like this. That's why we have so, we've put such an effort into making the program barrier-free because we want those people who really need it to not feel like they can't come for whatever reason. So uh, considering like affordability and food insecurity is a national issue, it takes more than just, you know, one program with one or two people at the helm of it to address that. I've been really grateful for my coworkers that I do have here. Everybody is trying really hard to get through December. It's been difficult and different, but the support that has come from within the organization, from the other departments, and also from without of the organization in the community has been really essential. For more on this story or to listen to the whole thing if you missed the start, go to the news section of our website, stokefm.com. Last week, Selkirk Innovates published their yearly State of the Basin report. The report looks at the economic, environmental, cultural, and social well-being of the Columbia Basin Boundary Region. Tom Thompson, Executive Director of the Chamber of Commerce in Nelson, spoke to Kootenai Co-op Radio about the median wage decrease, the threat of the retiring labor force, and even though the immigration rate to Nelson is on the rise, it still isn't enough. CJLY's Scott Onishuk has the scoop. Selkirk Innovates released their annual State of the Basin report last week. The report is a study of economic, environmental, cultural, and social well-being in the Columbia Basin Boundary region. Kootenai Co-op Radio spoke with Tom Thompson, the Executive Director of the Chamber of Commerce in Nelson, to help understand some of the workforce demographics and business climate statistics. One number that stood out was the median wage in the region dropped from $29 per hour to $28. Thompson says it's not that people are making less, but it's more related to an increase in lower-paying jobs. Likely, rather wage going down by about a dollar would be more service industry type jobs being provided at in the mix. So that would ultimately bring down the median wage rate per hour. One of the more alarming statistics from the report was the labor force replacement rate being at 0.63. If this number is less than one, it means the region is unable to maintain the current labor force with local replacement workers. That sort of a trend has been developing over the last number of years. More and more people are getting retirement age, and we don't have the same number of people coming into the workforce as people that are exiting the workforce. So our population is kind of staying stagnant. And if there's no immigration, it makes it really problematic. 
The State of the Basin report shows that net migration to the region has increased by 11%, but that's clearly not enough to maintain the labor force. Thompson says more immigration is needed, but that comes with other issues as well. Something that we need, but one of the problems that that also comes with would be the need for housing for all of the new people coming into the country. Look around Nelson, we're close to a 0% vacancy rate, so much as there's a need, there's also the challenges of finding housing. The region also saw a decrease in business starts. The previous year saw 872 businesses as compared to 840. Thompson attributes this decline to rising business costs. Oh, with the rising costs of doing business, it makes it really challenging to try to become entrepreneurial and try to be profitable with your investment, your business. So it's not a huge drop, but it's likely a lot to do with the cost of doing business just increasing. Reporting in Nelson, Scott Anuschuk, KCR News. CFUR in Prince George and the Nechaco Aboriginal Employment Training Association have recruited six Indigenous youth into a 25-week hands-on radio broadcast training program at CFUR. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CFUR Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. Heather McKenzie, within her role as Pre-Employment Services Team Lead for Prince George, with Pigneta, the Prince George Nechaco Aboriginal Employment Training Association joins us today. Heather has recruited six Indigenous youth into a 25-week hands-on radio broadcast training program. What about this program are you most excited for, Heather? I'm excited about this program because our focus is the youth. Our focus is unemployed youth and they reside within First Nation community within the 18 bands in the area of Prince George. And this is the first time of its kind radio station training broadcast program. So the idea is at the end of the program, they'll have full-time employment. Uh, if they require continued training, just to bring them, you know, further up to par within that business, then they would provide additional training. I understand you yourself have some background in radio. Can you tell us a little bit about the skills you picked up in that experience and okay. how they're serving you now? Well, I was I worked for the Williams Lake First Nation. It's actually my community, my home community. And when I first started working there, the chief of the time, which was Nancy Sandy, she wanted a, a radio station on reserve. And, and I ended up moving away. And I came back years later, and I'll never forget that request that she had made. So... I held fast to that plan, and as a result, I built a uh, radio station within the Williams Lake First Nation that is in operation today. So I was the founder of it. It's a nonprofit as well, and I trained many youth that have gone through that radio station door. And as a result, one of those youth are, is our chief today, which is Willie Sellers. Wow. And he is very, very well-spoken. The prior time that you spent within radio there, is that why you think mm -hmm. it's important to connect youth to this experience now? I really think it's important. The, boy, uh, the youth find their voice, and that's going to take them through life in a really good way so that they're able to speak up, know what it is that they want to say, and uh, be able to have a voice. Considering the popularity of podcasting, sharing stories mm -hmm. in the medium of pure audio is a rising trend. And when coupled with radio delivery, an easily accessible and affordable format, 
the value of being able to share perspectives, news, and stories in this way is considerable, right? But not right. not everyone is willing to face the challenge of learning new skills and exploring these techniques, though. I'm curious, how did you find six youth who were willing to undertake the, the rigors of radio broadcasting? And I'm glad you asked that question because it was very, very difficult, but I was determined to see this program of success. My uh, co-workers and I, we did a lot of legwork. And the idea of my immediate supervisor, Karen Hunt, she is she was really liking the, uh, the idea of having a radio station broadcast training program for our youth. So I said, okay, we're going to do it. So we just kept handling the communities to, you know, provide us some youth and take this out. We really had to dress it up and offer other opportunities, not just the radio station training. So they'll have their driver's license by the end of this program if they don't already. They'll also have life skills. We provided them funding so that they could buy new clothing, any kind of supplies that they may need to undertake this training program. We provided them a place to live, which is out of the community and just a little ways out of town, not far. We have actual hired a project coordinator who drives them to the program every day. So she'll go up to the house where they all stay and she'll come in, make sure they have their lunches, their breakfasts packed and away they go. So, but I think if it wasn't for the program project coordinator, it probably wouldn't be as successful because she just stays right on top of each of the youth and and she's kind of very motherly she's a wonderful woman uh cheryl layton is her name we do have another staff her name is mary hanson and she does a lot of the coordination with our project coordinator cheryl uh, they do a lot of shopping they made sure that the furniture was available for when they moved in such as a bed so then we we rented a home that was fully furnished so it made it easier for for the program to just kind of smoothly roll into it that is absolute commitment. Yes. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. Find our news stories online at canada-info.ca or cfur.ca. Smithers Citizens on Patrol is coming back in action, and I have that scoop for CSK News. My name's Lauren Benson. I'm a resident of Smithers. I've been in, in, involved with Citizens on Patrol in the past, sometimes by way of work and sometimes uh, by way of being a volunteer and going out on patrols. The group online and offline, it seems like it's been pretty quiet for the past couple of years. Why do you think that there was an interest in getting it started again? There's no question that uh, the COVID pandemic was a part of the problem at that point then. People weren't able to uh, interact with anyone outside of their household. And so volunteers couldn't get together to team up for patrols unless they came from the same household, of course. And so then that, that had an impact as well on it, any administrative responsibilities that volunteers also had when it came to going into the community policing office in order to get paperwork done, send in reports, those sorts of things. Right. So uh, there's been an evolution with citizens on patrol, and some of them are still grandfathered into the earliest days when it was organized in a rather ad hoc way. And today there's legislated requirements uh, for 
setting up citizens on patrol as a nonprofit society, for example. And so then there's the uh, added administration that goes along with that. Does the board create the training processes or is that something that comes from a larger provincial or federal organization that gives citizen on patrol groups and communities guidelines for what sort of training to do? That's a good question, Pamela. The there, there is a National Canadian Citizens on Patrol Association, and uh, they are a resource base for organizations um, interprovincially. There's currently not an active provincial association. Uh, so with uh, communities like Salmon Arm and Williams Lake and Nanaimo still having very active citizens on patrol groups, there's lots of examples out there of best practices, and, and, and so that's kind of simplifying how we move forward and getting it organized in Smithers. Now, if someone wanted to join the group, what's the best steps for them to take? Well, they can contact myself. I've got my contact information on um, social media. Uh, they can contact uh, Dave Pruden, our community safety um, officer with the town of Smithers. Uh, they can also leave their their name and contact information with the local Smithers detachment and uh, the staff sergeant, uh, Mark Smale, would certainly pass that information along to me as well. That was the last episode of The Scoop for 2023. The Scoop is a provincial podcast and newscast with stories from LJI journalists around British Columbia. Each week, reporters from Revelstoke, Cortez Island, Kootenai Terrace, Prince George and Smithers share the news affecting their place in B.C. I'm your host and producer, Pamela Hassan from CICK News in Smithers. The Scoop was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program, or LJI. Follow The Scoop on CICK Smithers Community Radio, 93.9 FM, every Thursday and Saturday at noon, online at smithersradio.com. And wherever you get your podcasts, follow Smithers Community Radio or just simply search for The Scoop. Williams.